0: Hi, I'm Esau Kwonga and I'm Ryan Hunt and we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ring of Podcast Network.
1: If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: On April 3rd, the Walt Disney Company will be hosting its annual meeting of shareholders,
1: and we need you all to vote for your board. It's important you vote only for Disney's 12 nominees
0: using the white proxy card. Do not vote for the Triand Group or Blackwell's nominees. Learn more at VoteDisney.com. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.
1: It is Friday, June 16th. In the animation world, the third weekend in June has been called the Pixar Weekend. In the past decade, everything from Inside Out to Incredibles 2, Finding Dory, Cars 3, Toy Story 4, all opened this weekend and became huge hits. It's part of a truly incredible run that Pixar went on, one of the all-time great streaks in Hollywood history, going all the way back to Toy Story in 1995. The company revolutionized computer-generated animation, and its creative force, John Lasseter, was hailed as a modern Walt Disney So much so that when Disney bought Pixar in 2006 for $7.4 billion, Lasseter and his co-founder, Ed Catmull, also took over Disney Animation Studios, turned that into a powerhouse with hits like Frozen and Moana. An incredible success story. But that was then. In 2018, Lasseter left the company after he was accused of some inappropriate touching in the workplace. Catmull retired the next year. And then the pandemic hit. Pixar had a flop with Onward, which came out just as COVID was starting to shutter theaters. And then the next three Pixar movies, Soul, Luca, and Turning Red, all were sent directly to Disney Plus by the company's previous CEO, Bob Chapek. The Pixar folks I talked to were pretty upset about those moves, thinking it was training Pixar fans to expect its movies to go directly to streaming instead of theaters, where it really was one of the big Tiffany brands in film, especially Turning Red, which probably could have done real business in theaters last spring. Then last year, Pixar released Lightyear, a spinoff of Toy Story. On that same Pixar weekend in June, it flopped big time, grossing just $218 million worldwide, which is about what it cost to make. A new low for the company. Now the new Pixar movie, Elemental, is set for this weekend in that same Pixar slot. and The tracking is not good. It'll be lucky if it opens to $40 million domestic on another $200 million budget. So what's going on here? Lots of theories, some not so scary, like all film studios have hot and cold streaks and Pixar is just on a cold streak. Some a lot scarier. Like, what if audiences just aren't interested in seeing the kind of original and more challenging animated films in theaters anymore? If it's not Spider-Man or Super Mario Brothers, maybe the movie should go directly to streaming. But then they probably can't cost $200 million or more. That's the conundrum for Pixar and its leader, Pete Docter. And it's what I'm talking about today with my guest, Rebecca Keegan. Rebecca's been on the show before. We worked together at Hallow Reporter, where she's a senior film editor, and she's written about Pixar and interviewed Docter. Today, it's the Disney-Pixar problem. How big is it, really? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Rebecca Keegan, who is Senior Editor of Film at The Hollywood Reporter, a former colleague of mine, and a very smart person on film, and especially Pixar. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi, Matt. All right. So let's talk about the state of Pixar here, because I think you would agree with me in saying that for the last, you know, nearly three decades, this has been the Tiffany brand of animation and arguably the Tiffany brand of film in general. I mean, heading up to The Good Dinosaur in 2015, they hadn't had a movie that didn't make money 15 in a row. Like, not bad. And then that was followed by movies like Incredibles 2, Toy Story 4, Coco. We could go on and on and on. But now, Pixar finds itself in a really tough spot, in my opinion, because they've got this model where they make one to two films a year. Those films cost $200 million or so to make. They have an entire infrastructure and system set up under the pretense That their movies will make seven, eight, nine, a billion dollars. And we saw last summer with Lightyear, it made two something. We see this weekend with Elemental, the tracking is not great. So, where does that leave Pixar? Is this a fundamental shift in the marketplace of animated films that they are going to have to reckon with? Or is this the kind of creative slump? that all film companies hit in their lifetime and we just haven't really seen it with Pixar and now we are and they can recover.
2: I mean reports of Pixar's death have happened before this. There was I think it was Cars 2 which had pretty terrible reviews. Not every movie was a critical slam dunk, you know, they they made money, but they weren't perfect despite the way people kind of remember Pixar. They did enjoy this kind of remarkable creative freedom in the era when Bob Iger had bought the company and he and John Lasseter kind of protected everything that they did. They got the opportunity to push movies a year if they needed to, which was quite unusual. Well, that was in
1: the deal. Steve Jobs right. insisted on that when he sold the company to Iger. And there's a whole backstory. If you ever want to read about this, it's in Iger's book. Yeah, But there's a whole back and forth between Steve Jobs and Bob Iger about the terms of selling Pixar to Disney. And one of those terms is leave us the F alone and mm-hmm. let us do what we do. We do not want this to be absorbed into the Disney Borg. And all of a sudden, you change our culture. You change everything that makes Pixar unique. But that deal was done at a time of rip-roaring success. It lasted for about 10, 12 years after the deal. Now, all the people that were involved in that deal, John Lasseter, Ed Catmull, Steve Jobs, all gone. They have a new generation of leadership. Bob Iger is under tremendous pressure to cut costs. They just had layoffs at Pixar for the first time in over a decade. And you've got this sense of kind of, oh, crap, what do we do here?
2: Right. That deal was long before streaming, which has been a huge part of what has changed at Pixar is a number of their movies went straight to the streaming service. And kind of, I think, affected the patina of Pixar. You, know, Pixar you think mo- so? You think the, the, audience,
1: the audience picked up on that?
2: I do. I think Pixar movies have historically been understood to be special in a right. way that I think almost no brand does. I mean, directors are understood to be special, but not studios. People literally have Pixar logos tattooed on their bodies. Like, that's an unusual level of identification with a company. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it, you, but, you do not,
1: Greg. Just, just not being yet, clear. No, not yet. Okay.
2: Not yet working on finding the right design. Right, of course. Um, But when they started as a result of the pandemic, you know, dropping directly on the service and I don't, you know, not even necessarily with premium pricing, it was just kind of like plop, here it goes. And I think it gave people at the studio a sense that they were no longer special in the way that they had been and potentially audiences too, sort of unlearned the idea that Pixar movies are, are special and important and you go see them in the theater.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the first two, Soul and Luca, were sort of height of the pandemic. Soul, in particular, was supposed mm-hmm. to come out in the fall of 2020. That made sense, but again, some of the Disney movies during that time period under Bob Chapek were in the premium, pay extra category, and it kept things like Black Widow from you know feeling special, even if it kind of kneecapped the box office.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Disney didn't do that with the Pixar movies, and then especially. Turning Red, which was early 2022. That movie, I think, could have made money and done very well in theaters. It was fun. It had a very well-defined demo. Young girls were going to love it. It's about a young girl. It had a fun boy band (laughs) storyline. I think that movie could have really done well in theaters, yet JPEG said, nope, we're doing Disney Plus on that. Now, obviously, the entire entertainment ecosystem thinking on this subject has shifted in a year, and that would never happen today. But the damage from that, I think, is still pretty significant. I don't think it would have saved Lightyear. Lightyear was not a great movie. It was a creative misfire. I think most people at, at Pixar would probably agree with that. Taking what everybody loved about the Toy Story franchise, throwing it in the garbage, and doing a super earnest sci-fi superhero, essentially, movie wasn't the right move. So it leads me to question the creative leadership. John Lasseter, who was a singular figure at the studio, he left under Cloud, but he was replaced by Pete Docter, who by all accounts is a very nice guy, everyone loves him, creative genius, directed inside out, directed a number of really seminal Pixar movies. I think you need to start to question when some of these movies have not worked. And you've interviewed Pete Doctor. What do you think about that? Do you think that the buck stops with him?
2: Well, it's important to realize that most of the movies we're talking about were greenlit before Pete Doctor was in charge. So there's always- That is always true, a,
1: but you know the Pixar process. They long tinker, and iterative. Yes, 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 yes,
2: yes. And it's also true that Pete Doctor is a very different kind of leader than his predecessor, which he would be the first person to say. In fact, he was- kind of reluctant to take the job. You know, he described to me being called by Bob Iger to Burbank for the meeting where he kind of knew that he was going to be asked to take over Pixar in this very tumultuous era, you know, right after Lasseter had left, the studio was kind of being run by committee. um, And there was this sort of leadership gap and, and just kind of stress and confusion at Pixar and Pete Doctor had always been sort of a quiet guy who loved animation. He was not a guy who walked into a room and sort of expected to command it. But he was very trusted um, by beloved, his Beloved by beloved, the creatives. Beloved and trusted. And I think that that was really important. He was also, you know, Ed Catmull told me that Pete was always the heir apparent. And the reason for that was that when things would go off the rails at Pixar, which happened all the time. I mean, that's part of sort of their, their story is that regularly they would tear up movies and start again, and they would push release dates, they would fire directors. Um, that's, that's part of their process. But every time that would go wrong, it was Pete who would walk into Ed's office and be the most stressed about it, even when it wasn't his movie. So he right. carried the kind of like emotional sense of responsibility for the company. And that was why both Ed And John expected that Pete would be the person to take over the company. He took it over at a time when you have the pandemic, you have the leadership confusion of being between two Bobs at the top of Disney. The
1: Bob sandwich.
2: The Bob sandwich. You have the demand to create for streaming. So Pixar, which had been making one to two movies a year, is now making shows for the streaming service. And there's demand to produce more and more and more. And as we just saw, you know, a couple of weeks ago, they laid people off. So they're producing more and they're laying people off. So I think it's, it's hard to do a one-to-one comparison leadership-wise. There are so many other factors that are affecting how Pixar movies are doing, both commercially and artistically.
1: This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight Saving Time is back. Wait, wasn't that a movie from 2009? Okay. Anyway, I do love more hours of daylight. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash
0: town. Tap the banner to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln and the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid. Featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates.
1: We'll get to the marketplace question, but the creative one is an interesting one because I have talked to people in and around Pixar, that have cited a specific shift. And it may be an overall industry shift in the creative way that that movies are approached, but it was cited as a shift from more all audience, more accessible themes and subjects to a more more personal style of filmmaking. Pixar has always been filmmaker driven and they have always done personal style stories. But if you look at some of those seminal Pixar movies, you know, Ratatouille, yes, is about a rat, but it's also about exceptionalism and being special and owning being special. If you look at something like WALL-E, yeah, it's a cute robot, but it's about sort of existential questions of like what it means to be human and what it means to be uh, an active person in the world same with Up. And all of these movies, Up was Doctor directed. There was always under Lasseter this broader accessible and fun theme to these movies. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with this, but it's been cited to me. The shift has been that these Pixar movies now are much more personal. They, When you talk to people at Pixar, it's like, yes, this is the personal vision of this filmmaker. And they're trying to make it accessible. Obviously, you try to make a commercial film. But when the emphasis under Doctor has been so much that the filmmaker's personal vision is the gold star that they are all shooting for, that you necessarily produce movies that are going to have a smaller audience.
2: That's interesting. I hadn't heard that framed that way before, but I can I can see what you're talking about. I mean, one of the things about the the era when Pixar's box office was so remarkable is that they had... Very few female characters. Very few non-white characters. One female director who was fired. So right. the, Opry, the, the, Brenda the right. So the sort of quote-unquote universalism of the stories. You know, there are multiple ways you can look at that. That's and a very the-
1: throwback sensibility. I, I I see what you're saying. And Lasseter Lasseter a boomer. You know, and if you look at the original sensibility of Toy Story, it is a throwback type of sensibility where these are the toys from the childhood of boomers, basically, with the army people and Mr. Potato Head and all of these other tools. Now, it was super accessible and fun and great for anybody. I, you know, saw this when I was young and was like spoke to me. But I I see where you're saying that it might just be that these Pixar movies have a more modern sensibility to them and more diverse range of filmmakers and we don't live in a monoculture anymore these are going to necessarily perhaps be a little bit more niche
2: right it's like saying you know not as many people watch succession as watch the sopranos (laughs) well they're both culturally important for the company um but they were made in totally different eras creatively and and financially
1: But it gets to the question that I want to get into now of the marketplace for animation, because that is what we're operating in here. And, you know, you look at the success that companies like Universal and Sony have had with films this year, the Super Mario Brothers movie and the Spider-Verse sequel that are out in theaters, and everyone is saying, well, oh, those companies have figured it out. They have figured out how to get families back to the movie theaters for animated movies. And Pixar and Disney has not figured it out. They had Strange World this past holiday season, which flopped. They had Lightyear. They have this elemental film, which I don't want to pass judgment, but doesn't look like it's going to be a blockbuster. The difference there, and it's pretty obvious if you look, is that those two hits this year are both pre-branded, IP-driven franchise films. They are not originals. And the... Great thing about animation over the past decade or two is that while the appetite for original movies has sort of waned in the live action world, you kind of have to have a franchise to be a big hit. The Pixar movies, the originals did great. You had new franchises started in animation with things like Inside Out and Coco and you know we can go down the list. Has the marketplace come back where non-franchise animated films can succeed.
2: I don't know. And that makes me sad because one of my absolute favorite movies, not favorite animated movies, but just favorite movies is a uh, Pete doctor's movie. Mm-hmm. The first 20 minutes of which is like this silent film about grieving. And you just look at it now and you're like, how is this a billion dollar movie? Like, that's Would insane. it be
1: today? Would it be today? That's the question.
2: I don't know. Uh, if you released exactly qualitatively the same movie, I think there was a period where audiences were taking a chance on Pixar movies because they were Pixar, and I don't know if they are still doing that. And I think it's because audiences have changed. I do think the pandemic affected the brand, and there is also an element of there has been more success across a range of companies in animation. You know, there just weren't that as many players in the space. Yeah, people figured it
1: out. You look at Illumination at Universal, like they figured it out. I mean, the Pixar people hold their noses when they're talking about Illumination. They're like, oh yeah, they may get people into theaters with those movies. They're funny, but they don't last. And I'm not sure that's true anymore. You know, I look at my kid, I've got a seven-year-old. He knows exactly when the Minions movie is coming on Peacock. He knows exactly, he already knows about this movie that's coming out, this migration movie that's coming out later this year, and he's into it. Now he also wants to see Elemental, but like Illumination means kind of as much to him as Pixar does. And I think people of a previous generation, that would be sacrilege.
2: Right. No, it's true. I mean, Pixar for Gen X and millennials was a hugely important company. And that's not true for for younger people. They don't feel that connection with it that, that we did. There's also a big business difference between Pixar and Disney Animation and some of these other companies, which is, there are giant studio lots employing thousands of people um, on Pixar and Disney Animation. For a lot of other animation companies, they outsource an enormous amount of work to smaller studios around the world. um, And that is a less expensive way to make movies.
1: Yeah, Pixar also carries a lot of employees, even when they're not actively assigned to one film, which is also very expensive. And they're both Disney and Pixar are both based in California where labor costs are higher and, you know, some of the illumination stuff is done in France. So there are, you know, there's a reason why the Super Mario Brothers movie only costs around hundred million dollars where you're looking at 200 million for something like elemental. And that's a big issue. And I think Pixar is really evaluating this. People I've talked to there, they're like, we need to cut costs. And It's funny because Ed Catmull, the co-founder, wrote a book, Creativity Inc., about 10 years ago about the creative culture and the business of Pixar and how his management style caused this company to be what it was, or at least contributed to it. And he just did a update to that book that came out this week. It's actually interesting. If you've never read it, it's a great book to read if you're interested in the culture of creative communities. And so much of the book is about protecting the culture of Pixar from all of the outside forces, from the pressure to do sequels, which they relented on, and they did do sequels, but it was always a one-for-them, one-for-us mentality. We'll do the sequels, but we want to do the originals. And then protecting it from Disney. And Pixar has been very effective in keeping the Disney management. There are lots of services that could be duplicated between Pixar and Disney Animation, and they have resisted that. I don't think they're going to be able to resist that very longer. And there's lots of things in in Ed's book. Even something like Up. He talks specifically about the movie Up. When they were deciding whether to do that movie, they knew that it would be a zero for consumer products. Nobody. They joke nobody's going to buy an Up Walker. Like that's not that's not something that is going to sell.
2: But <laughs> with the tennis balls on it,
1: <laughs> right? But they decided to do it anyways because they said this is something that the filmmaker cares deeply about, and we see a path to an accessible all audience movie here. So they did it anyways. And I think increasingly at Pixar, you're going to see the pressure tilt in the other direction where maybe enough doesn't even get made these days. And we see it already after Lightyear failed. What do they do? They greenlit Toy Story 5. They've got in- uh, Inside Out 2 coming. There was another sequel that they announced um, that they're that they're putting together. So like, I think that the pressure on Pixar is going to be greater and I don't know if that's going to impact the creative in a negative way,
2: well, I wonder if we'll see the experimentation shift to the streaming service and we'll see that it's on their shows that they'll start taking some creative chances and doing some of the weirder things. Um, it's a lower stakes way to do it, and they won't be able to maintain the sort of well, clearly the budgets that they would have had on a tentpole movie in those spaces. but it will give them a chance to do. Some of the things that Catmull really cared a lot about fostering, which is this idea that you can fail at Pixar right. and then you can try again. And, and you know, that, that sort of iterative way of making a movie is expensive.
1: Well, look at the Peter Sahn, the director of Elemental, was the director of The Good Dinosaur, which was one of Pixar's flops. And he got another chance. And here we are 10 years later. He's got another movie.
2: Right. Which he took over from he was not the first director on The Good Dinosaur. He took that movie over from Bob Richardson. So that's an example of a movie that like midstream, they thought, shoot, this isn't going right. And they put this at that time, very young director Pete Stone in charge. So they were they're constantly switching things up. And they didn't they saw that as not a bug, but or at least Catmull saw it as not a, a bug, but a feature of the way they made movies. Whether that style can sustain itself economically in this new era, I think, is a, is a really good question.
1: Well, and among the layoffs this past month at Pixar was Angus McLean, who is the director of Lightyear. Right. And, you know, whether that was due to the failure of the movie, we don't know. But it certainly sent a message when the director and producer of a very public flop are out. Right. Not exactly a culture of, you know, you can fail and it's okay. That's a good point. So, yeah, I've seen some crazy things out there. Like, people say, oh, Disney should sell Pixar. Like, that is insane. Like, that is one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard. I mean, obviously, Pixar has been so ingrained in the company. They have successfully integrated the brand into the parks. They have a very, very unique asset. But I do think that Iger needs to figure out what the price point and the model is going to be for Pixar movies if the grosses for these movies cannot be expected to go beyond four or five hundred million dollars.
2: Right. They're going to have to find a cheaper way to do it, or they're going to have to be very selective about which of their movies get those budgets. Everything can't be a 200 million dollar swing.
1: But that's the thing is I've talked to people there say you know the problem is once you spend 200 million dollars on a movie it's very difficult in that environment to spend less. And Dreamworks does it. Dreamworks animation has separate budgets for their tentpole movies and for their non-tentpole movies. Like this movie The Teenage Kraken that's coming out in a couple of weeks which is not tracking very well. That movie got a lower budget than something like and Boots 2. Because right. that was attached to the Shrek franchise, and they knew that that at least had a chance to do bigger numbers. It turned out it was a very good movie, and it did well in theaters. But, you know, that's a, that's a, a, a dichotomy there. And Pixar doesn't seem to be able to do that, to make a, what does a low-budget Pixar movie look
2: like? Well, I don't know, but there was, remember the now shuttered Disney Tunes studio, which was their like direct-to-video studio where the little Tinkerbell movies sure. were made. They were made at a lower budget. And so when John Lasseter was running both Disney Animation and Pixar, he was also running this smaller studio called Disney Tunes that did, made these direct-to-video movies at lower budgets. Um, so there is a sort of model for doing it, for having some overlapping creative leadership while doing it in a cheaper way. It requires some compromise, but there, there are examples of it out there that they could look at.
1: Well, I hope from a creative perspective that Pixar survives creatively this era of cost cutting. I do think they need to figure out the budgets on these movies, but it is a pretty special place. If you've ever been there, it's a great place to visit. It's it is like the pure embodiment of like a creative workplace. It's pretty special. So, thanks Rebecca.
2: Thanks, Matt.
1: All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig and I were at the Indiana Jones premiere on Wednesday night, and after the movie, Everyone wanted to talk about the flash and what it's going to do this weekend, Craig, you have not seen the flash. I have, but are you bullish on the flash? I don't think the flash is going to make a splash not to make oh, a oh stop, stop No I funds. think it'll be
3: fine. I think people who see it will will like it, but I don't think it's going to do what James Gunn said it's
1: going to do. no, well no, he didn't make a box office prediction. He said it was one of the best comic book movies of all time, which the critics would disagree. It said about sixty eight percent on Rotten Tomato. But it is getting better than normal DC reviews. I saw it. I thought it was fun. There's some great stuff in it. Ezra Miller is great. We talked about this on Wednesday's show. But the $70 million for Flash is an interesting one. I am actually going to take the over. Mm-hmm. I think that the DC fan base will show up for this one. And it will get to not a lot over, but it will get to more than $70 million. I'm saying this with a bit of trepidation because it's already started rolling out last night. And, you know, I'm a little nervous about it, but I'm going to take the over. Maybe I'm just feeling good. I, I just missed on Transformers yeah. last week. I said, tough beat, under on 60, and it got to 61. So I dared doubt the Transformers, and I'm not going to dare doubt the Flash here.
3: Yeah, I don't know. This has been a pretty dark year, a grim year for superhero movies. And I think if the Flash flops were officially in panic mode,
1: Oh, you think so? You're ready to call it? Betting against superhero movies is like betting against the NFL. You realize that? I'm shorting superheroes. (laughs) Uh, The stock is pretty high, so maybe that's a good bet. But I don't know if I would do that. I just think uh, DC's got some issues. But James Gunn's Superman movie will probably do pretty well. Yeah, but when's that coming out? Like, yeah, two years. You're right. We'll see where we are by then. By the time
3: Avengers Secret Wars come out, what is that, five years from now? Is anybody going to give a shit by then? I think the answer is yes.
1: Okay, I don't. I kind of don't think so, but we'll see. So the second movie coming out this weekend is Elemental, as we've discussed. And mm-hmm. I am also hesitant on this one. The tracking is at 35. I, I, again, mostly on the back of my kid saying that he really wants to see it. I'm going to take the over on 35. That is a an absurdly low tracking number for a Pixar movie. I really hope it gets above 35. If it doesn't, this is oh shit time for Pixar.
3: I think you're right. I think they're probably lowballing to get an easy win. I also think the subject matter of this movie—you know—you were talking about—you know—kind of b- more broad topics and more broad-themed movies and and past Pixar films. Elemental is, is is extremely broad. It's like very colorful. It's about things that everybody can kind of understand. I think it's going to bring a large
1: group of people to the theaters. You think so? Except it's tracking at about half of what. Heyday Pixar movies would open. Well, heyday
3: Pixar is a different story. We were just talking before. Yeah, we I know. On. We just
1: talked about that. We don't yeah. need to rehash. So I'm going two over picks this week. Don't let me down, Hollywood. Really, like this is this is going to be a big deal if I miss on this. So uh, we'll see. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest Rebecca Keegan. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck and our editor Jesse Lopez. We will see you next week.
0: This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid